you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be starting there. Matthew 7. Really grateful to be with you again. Um, You know, I've thought before and talked to Sharon before about how, you know, one of our one of our fondest memories about being at Pinson and working there was coming here and spending a week with y'all and really getting to know the congregation here. Uh, so really great to be with you again. Uh, certainly thankful to see the Jet family again, and uh, it was an honor to work with them at Pinson, and I'm really happy to see them here this morning. Happy to see the Partains here. Wonderful to see them as well. Um, so I, I could go down the list, but I would probably forget a lot of names. <laughs> I'm, I'm bad about those things, but, um, but I'm really thankful for all who are here. Um, we're all here for a purpose, and that purpose, I hope, is for us to have the common understanding that we're here to glorify God. You know, that's why we're here on this earth. And in Matthew 7, Jesus makes an interesting statement in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate. Jesus says, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And when we think about that passage, one of the ways we typically look at that passage, I think, is in a very, you might say, binary way. You know, you're either going to go this way or that way. When. Maybe another way we can look at this passage is by the singularness of it. That we worship one God. And that one God has always existed. And always will exist. We're not talking about a God who uh, changes His mind in flighty ways. We're talking about a God that has always been the same. And one of the things we, when we think about this, and I want to talk to you this morning about particularly the worship of the one God. And we're not going to get into the nuts and bolts of things. I hope that we don't get kind of bogged down with the details of this lesson, because I think the, the beauty of what God has revealed to us is in the simplicity of it. And when we distinguish the old covenant worship Uh, from the New Testament worship, we look back on it and we see a lot of the nuts and bolts, don't we? We see a lot of the detail. And in fact, when we look at the Old Covenant worship, we refer to it this morning in the Bible study in the auditorium class, that there was a distinction between what the Jews practiced and what the Gentiles practiced. But one of the things that we might notice when we think about it was that that difference was fairly subtle. You, you, in terms of place, you, you had temples in high places among the worship of the Gentiles, didn't you? Um, you know, Paul, even in Acts 17, when he's uh, in Athens, he notices the different temples and the shrines that were set up there. You had festivals in all these different religions. In the Jews' religion, you had feasts and things like that. You had sacrifices, Of course, the Gentile religion was a little bit more broad in their choice of that, weren't they? At times they would sacrifice children or even people. And of course, he had prayers. All these elements were present in the Mosaic law according to worship and religion, but they were also present in the religions of the false gods of their time. Uh, One one thing we might notice, especially in terms of uh, the, the, the Hebrews, and, you know, we, we had originally the tabernacle, right? 
the dwelling place of God, and we're going to talk about that in detail, that dwelling place was always there. And it was centered around there. And of course the tabernacle was mobile, it was something they could take down and move. Later on in the time of Solomon, David set up the preparation in material for Solomon to build the temple of that time. And what's interesting when you think about this, it was a friend of mine that, that reminded me of this the other, uh, uh, a few weeks ago. That, you know, in the time of Solomon, there's many parallels between the time of Solomon and the way that we have it in the church today. In many ways. Mainly because everything up to that time that needed to be established in a permanent basis for God's people had been done. The temple had been established. All that was required of God's people was to continue on with that worship in the way that God had prescribed. Of course, we know that they failed in that. After the Babylonian exile, and after that time period where the Jews were thrust out of their land, they eventually came back and through uh, the decrees of various kings were able to re, uh, rebuild a form of the temple. And then, of course, by the time of Jesus' coming in the first century, Herod, the great, promised the Jews, I'm going to build you a great temple. And even though the Jews hated Herod, they were totally fine with the great temple that he built them. Well, what are we all getting at here? I've often thought before that there really was little to no difference uh, between the religion of God, the religion of the Jews, and the religions of the Gentiles at that time. Because think about it. They're all sacrificing bulls and goats, right? There's the blood sacrifice. There's the prayers. There's the temples. There's all these special things that I think at the surface would look very similar, wouldn't they? And I think a lot of times you had, even in the Babylonian exile, you had some some melding, some mixing there between the thoughts of the Gentiles and the thoughts of the Jews. That's why by by the first century you have the the Hellenist Jews referred to. They're Greek-influenced Jews, right? But the fact is, while there were some similarities, there seems to be more than that. And when we look at the big picture concerning worship of the one God, it seems that God always encourages His people to seek Him in a way that is often deemed difficult by the world. If someone was to be a Jew and hold to everything that the law entailed, how would someone out there in the world who was a Gentile look at that? Well, they might say, that's pretty stringent requirements. And some of the things we're going to look at today, some people might look at, well, that's stringent requirements. And don't people say to us today, you really meet every Sunday? You really meet every Wednesday? You partake of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And many people in the world will look at the ways of God as difficult, but hopefully in our study today, this morning, we can consider that this is not because God expects us to just jump through hoops. It's not that God just wants it to be difficult for us. Rather, He seeks our good. Deuteronomy 6.24 says, The Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as it is this day. This has been a consistent strain throughout all of time. And we'll talk about and develop this a little bit as we go through. I want to discuss, first of all, the essential elements of Old Covenant worship. And I think we really find them in one verse. 
Leviticus chapter 1. You might turn there. We'll look at there in just a moment. But Leviticus 1 and verse 3. Secondly, we want to discuss really the idea that God has never accepted mediocrity in worship. You might ask, well, how does that relate to this lesson? Uh, hopefully it meshes in with what we're discussing this morning. But there's a, there's a consistency throughout all of what God has revealed. And finally, we want to talk about doing our best in what we might call new covenant worship. We want to talk about some of the similarities there and consider those things together today. So, old covenant worship. Again, we may get wrapped up in the details of it, but if we look at Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 3, uh, Leviticus is a very interesting book. And what has helped me in the past few years, you know, for a long time, uh, uh, you know, in my read-throughs of the Bible, it just gets hard when you get to Leviticus because it's just it gets rep- repetitive. Uh, we get kind of bogged down again, bogged down in the details. But look at Leviticus one, and just we're going to read together in verse three, just by itself. So the Lord is showing uh, uh, them how they're going to do these things essentially. In Leviticus one and verse three says, if his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. Excuse me, yeah, let me offer let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Now these phrases that we're going to discuss pop up a lot throughout all of Leviticus. And may I suggest that if we get that in our mindset, uh, these basic things that I'm going to go over, it actually helps me to read through Leviticus. And it, it gets, you know, one of the things that Tom Holly focuses on when he, uh, if y'all know him, he focuses on what he calls like the pillars of a book. You want to get onto these anchor points that you can kind of see and be looking for certain things in the scope of the book. And it helps you and you read through, it helps you through your study. So one of the first things I might suggest in this uh, verse is we find that Old Covenant worship demanded that there be the right person. He says plainly, he shall offer it of his own free will. That same phrasing exists in chapter 19, verse 5, chapter 22, verses 19 and 29. The Old Covenant worship was meant to be pure, right? We want to have pure worship before the one God. Well, how do we, how do we attain that? Well, the old law is telling us here that it has to be uh, that the person freely offers the worship. This is not something where we are uh, led by a gun to do you know, what God requires. We're not forced to do this. From our own free will, the Jew would offer this sacrifice. And so that's what we find, first of all, is that it needs to be the right person. Secondly, it needed to be the right offering. When he says in verse 3, let him offer. Despite what we might think, the old covenant worship of God was not the same as the other nations that surrounded Israel and were clear in other places. In its most basic concept of what is offered, we see a clear distinction. Gentile nations, you might be turning to Numbers chapter 28. Gentile nations, when you look at what they offered and why they were offering it, it became very important because typically what would happen is, and this is the same kind of thing that uh, I think is at the base of a lot of uh, the religion of Islam, 
is the sense of serving God or serving Allah, as they call him, not on the basis of the fact of what he has done for us, but based on the fact that if I do not do this, he will punish me and he will be angry with me. It is an obligation law-based mentality that says, I'm doing this to provide something to appease the God. Gentile nations would provide food and sustenance to their gods. That's why you see in some cultures that in some festivals they'll set a place even and set some food up for their, their, maybe their family god or their tribal god or things like that. And in Numbers 28 you might argue that some of the language kind of uh, gets close to that. Look at Numbers 28 and verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings, made by fire is a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer it in me at their appointed time. You shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer it to the Lord. Two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day, as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. And one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering, mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil. It is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And its drink offering shall be one-fourth of a hen for each lamb. In a holy place you shall pour out the drink, drink to the Lord as an offering. The other lamb you shall offer in the evening as the morning grain offering and its drink offering. You shall offer it as an aroma, uh, as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, again, we, we discussed a little bit about assumptions that we take into the text. Someone reading that might make the assumption, well, we're we're giving this food to the Lord so that he can be sustained by it. Or we're giving this drink to the Lord so that he, he can be sustained by it. Of course, we know that that's not the case, right? <laughs> But the language seems to indicate that maybe this food is being laid out before God. But if we look at passages like Psalm 50, you might turn there with me as well. We get a proper explanation of this. And and this is something that I think the, the children of Israel often got wrong. The idea that we're providing this to the Lord. We're giving something to Him when we sacrifice. And in a way, I guess that might be true. But Psalm 50 has some words that I think really uh, speak toward this. Psalm 50 and verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Later on in verse 23, we see really the, the, the centering of this at the end of the psalm. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. See, the idea I get from that is that it's not about 
uh, providing this for God so much as having the mindset of glorifying Him, having the sense that I'm going to offer this for the Lord. And we can conclude from this that the outer worship of the Jews might have been misunderstood, and I believe was misunderstood, to be the same as other nations. But it was not. Old covenant worship was meant to be pure, demanding a true free will offering of praise from the heart of true praise that showed itself to be different from the other religions. So we're at the right person, the right offering. What else did Leviticus tell us? Well, we have to do this, or at that particular sacrifice had to be at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Have to have the right place. The tabernacle, of course, we talked about uh, was a tent, it was mobile. The temple itself was established or fixed. These were shown to be the dwelling place of God. In Exodus 33, we see when Moses entered the temple, the cloud, the pillory cloud would come down and God would manifest the fact that He was there to the children of Israel. We know that at least three, and it eventually became something like seven, feasts or festivals required a return to the temple. We have the Passover in Exodus 12. The unleavened bread, a Passover a festival, feast of unleavened bread in Exodus 13 and Leviticus 23, and the, the festival of weeks, which was later known as Pentecost in Leviticus 23. And so we recognize old covenant worship was meant to be pure, requiring the proper place for that worship to be conducted. And then finally, of course, the right heart. This is, of course, core in reaching out to God at all. Before the Lord. You see that phrase very often when God is talking about His sacrifices uh, that, that He was requiring from the Israelites. And if you look back in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, we know that God required this of His people to love Him with everything they had. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, He says there, "...you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart." with all your soul, and with all your strength. This was absolutely needed. A heart allied to God will want to be closer to Him in every way. And this is an eternal precept. What we want to begin to see here is that God had the same individual requirements for the heart under the old law as He has today under the new law. We know that this is true. We know that this is eternal. Look back at Psalm, Psalm chapter 5, or Psalm 5, excuse me. Fifth Psalm. We're looking at verse 7. Psalm 5, verse 7. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy, in fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Look in verse 11. But let all those who re- those rejoice who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. Let me suggest again, this, is, this seems to be the heart that says, I'm doing this not because God will punish me if I don't. But it's the heart that says, all this has been given to me by grace... And I love my Father, and so that motivates me to do what He commands. We know that a corrupted heart as well will distance itself from God. 
Saul heard this in 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23, when, when Samuel told him essentially, you know, does God care as much about the sacrifices as He does about truly obeying? Obeying is better than sacrifice. And Saul, unfortunately, did not learn that lesson. Well, let's understand as well, that as we come out of this idea that, that of, of the right person, the right uh, offering, the right place, and the right heart was all needed under the Old Covenant. And what we notice, too, is that God has never accepted mediocrity in worship. What do I mean by the term mediocrity? Uh, well, some of you know I like to look back at Webster's 1828 definitions because words change their meaning over time. And it's, it's interesting to me to find these definitions back in the early 19th century and how different we regard them today. And this is an interesting thing because most of the time I prefer the definition of the Webster's 1828. But this is one time where it's, it's a little bit different. When you look at Webster's 1828 for mediocrity, it's defined as a middle state or degree, a moderate degree or rate. A mediocrity of condition is most favorable to morals and happiness. A mediocrity of talents well employed will generally ensure respectability. Isn't that interesting? That it's looked at as a good thing to be mediocre. <laughs> and of course we think of mediocre as just uh, the modern definition of moderate or low quality value, ability, or performance. And so what I'm saying here is that uh, this word has meant something positive in the past, but everyone now understands it to be something rather negative, right? Nobody wants to be mediocre, right? And even then, the, the definition doesn't describe at all what the worship of God ought to be. We know that oftentimes it becomes a temptation for us to fill the time, right? Just let's get the slot done. Let's get it all taken care of. I, I recently read a book uh, edited by um, Max Dawson titled Do Things Well. I would recommend it. It's a really good, good read, a solid read. One of the main things that he points out there is that you know, just because someone is willing to do something doesn't necessarily mean that they should. And of course, there's this distinction there, Right? In larger congregations, maybe make that distinction. In smaller congregations, if someone can do something, maybe that's all we've got and we go with it. And that's fine. But at the core of it, we need to remember something. That if we want to worship the one God, the Creator God, we better put everything that we have into that. I, I find myself in violation of this so often. Where... Maybe we just don't feel like it on a certain Sunday, right? Maybe we just don't feel like studying the Bible on a certain Wednesday night. Maybe we just don't feel like doing it, but we're going to go ahead and do it because we have to do it. We need to challenge ourselves and think about, am I putting everything that I can toward making this the best it can be? And again, I'm not saying that someone who doesn't know music theory can't lead singing. That's not what I mean at all. But I'm saying let's put everything we have into it. So often it becomes a by-the-numbers thing. And we know, we can go back to the Scriptures and understand. We don't have time to go into this per se. But when we look back at Malachi, it's a really interesting thing. 
Because God's people came out of the exile. And you know what? Idolatry wasn't a problem anymore. They weren't going to follow after the Canaanite deities anymore. They were going to hold true to God. They understood that's why that had happened. They understood the warning of the prophets, of course, too late. But by the time of Malachi, their worship had become a vain and empty practice that really didn't have much to it. Malachi 1, verses 7 and 8, You offered defiled food on my altar, but say, In what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Again, Malachi 3 talks about the fact that they've said it's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? That, that betrays the wrong mindset. And so often Christians today, we are focused on what we get out of it. We've got to stop that. If I'm focusing on what I'm getting out of it, that's, that's, we've got to rethink it. And, and, and it twists us, really. Because you know, in Jeremiah's day, God warned His people saying, do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And you might say, well, we don't have a temple like they had. Yes, we do. We're it. Acts 5.3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Focusing on what we get out of it will lead to really ruin, ultimately, and lead to a place of mediocrity where we're not doing what's best. How do we do our best in New Covenant worship? Again, let me suggest that it comes down to the right person. It needs to be voluntary. Paul talked about that in Philemon in verse 14, where he wasn't going to force the brethren to accept Onesimus, but he was pleading to them. You know, that your good deed might be not by compulsion, but as it were voluntary. God expects and desires anything we do to be voluntary. We may not want to do it, but in the end we need to choose to do it. Like the, like the son that said, no, I'm not going to work in my vineyard. But later on he did, right? He was the one that was faithful. Often we might think of some of the things that we do uh, in in services, welcoming visitors. We've got to make sure that we're doing that in the best way. Uh, you know, it's been said six out of ten of those visitors will not come back. We have to make sure that we work on the remaining four and encourage them in those ways. And there's some passages there that we don't have time to get to today. But in 1 Corinthians 14, deals with those things. And of course, James 2. Beginning the assembly and what we do to, to get into the proper mindset. Um, you look at the Psalms. And, and especially Psalm 120 to 134 is said to be the, the Psalms of Ascent. And that the Jews would be singing these on their way up, uh, up the Temple Mount to Jerusalem. right? And, and they're getting ready to come to the Temple and to worship God in truth and in spirit. And so uh, we, we need to be aware when we come together about a general sense of thinking about God and not on secular things and prepare ourselves that way and, and rejoice in that. Not, not somber things, not in, not in a somber, solitary way, but we have to come voluntarily of our own free will, of course, and that's the best way for us to be prepared. Again, the offering. 
What's our offering in the New Testament? In Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2, David says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Again, in Psalm 95, the the fact that God is the great God, the great King above all gods, and how He formed things. And that's really what it comes down to. Why do I offer to God what I offer Him? Because He made me. Because He made everything. And that's the reason we do these things. Again, Psalm 135, sing praises. Uh, it's in the middle of the thought, in the middle of the verses. Sing praises to His name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel for His special pleasure. For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Are we thinking of that when we come together? We need to know that Jesus is the eternal sacrifice and we are the daily sacrifice, right? Romans 12.1, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Hebrews 13 and verse 15, by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to our God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. Is that our mindset? Are we, do we feel like we're being pulled to this like, well, i got to do this? Or are we thinking about how we get to do this and offer these things? Again, the place. Remember, we're, we're the temple of God. If, if I'm a Christian, if I'm saved in Him, then we're the temple of God. He tabernacles or He dwells within the saint. 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you're the temple of God? 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and you are not your own? Then further in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? It's up to all of us individually to make sure not just that I'm doing the right things, but I'm keeping myself pure and holy in mind. We know that place doesn't mean the same thing in the New Covenant, but it's interesting when you think about this. Place doesn't really matter now, does it? But place does matter. Because what, where am I in my heart? Am I somewhere else when I'm supposed to be worshiping God? Am I thinking of something else? That's an adulteration of our temple. We're, we're placing our temple somewhere else. Hebrews 10, of course, 10, 19-25 shows us that the assembly is the way that we encourage each other to love and good works. And so th- there's a necessity there. And that's why it's important for us to recognize that, yes, it's necessary for us to meet with the saints. And it, you know, but, but, of course, someone who is asking, do I really have to be there every Sunday? Do I really have to be there every Wednesday? Again, it goes back to that wrong mindset. You know, we're trying to get to that point where we're trying to be like the Pharisees. I just want to, on the shallow end of it, I just want to be you know, where I need to be. I'm not going to go too much farther than that. I'm going to add to some things to make sure that I'm not doing this and that. We've got to serve God like Jesus served God, right? Because He loved Him. Because He loved His Father. And again, gets back to the right heart. Right person, right offering, right place, right heart. In Psalm 79... In verses 8 and 9, uh, we might turn there and just read this together because it's just so indicative of the mindset that we need to have. Psalm 9, 
in verse 8. Why do, we, why do we seek to be cleansed? Why do we seek to be righteous before God? Why do we seek to be pure? Uh, you know, I, I want to say too, it's okay for us to say, I want to avoid hell, right? I don't want to go there. Nobody wants to go there. But look at the reason that they're praising God here. In Psalm 79 verse 8, Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and provide atonement for our sins, for your name's sake. It's impressive to me. Because they're not saying, save us, so that we can have a comfortable life and that everything can be okay with us. He's not saying, they're not saying save us for our sake. He's saying save us for your name's sake. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about glorifying Him. And if I focus on what I'm getting out of the equation, you know, if we know enough about God, we can leave that up to Him, right? He's going to take care of us. We don't even need to have a thought about what we're getting out of this. We need to think about Him. Holy and totally. A very similar statement in, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Departures from this are going to be significant for different saints. We might have a brother mumbling through prayers or lethargically reading Scripture, scrambling together songs a few minutes before services. We've all done that, and sometimes emergencies require us to do so. But sometimes when someone makes a practice for that and never really puts the time into it, we recognize that he doesn't give God the glory by distancing himself from God. Maybe his heart isn't as close to God as it needs to be. Another brother might have intentionally flowery prayers, right? Uh, read Scripture as if he's trying to be a dramatic actor. Lead songs as if they're entertainment put together by him. Or preach as if everybody has a problem but him. He doesn't give God the glory either because he fails to restrain himself in the way that he leads. He's putting too much on himself. Both of these brethren that I've suggested have severe heart problems in the way they're manifesting their approach to worship in the assembly. In both ways, when you think about it, each brother is being mediocre in his own way. (laughs) Because sometimes you pull too much away from actually being what you ought to be, and then you put too much focus on yourself sometimes. We have to strike that balance. Both of these brethren, as I'm talking about here, have violated the purpose of our worship. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever amen the worship of God has and always will be about bringing glory to him and it's about being that right person cleansed in him you ever ever think about that too we have to be cleansed by him before we can properly worship him have to have the right offering All the things that He's commanded for us to do, we have to do. Free will, completely giving that up. We have to be in the right place. And we have to have the right heart. Hopefully this has been useful for you today.
so thankful again for the time together. And uh, if perhaps this is this lesson has spurred you to think about where your soul is today, we encourage you to think about that. Um,